The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. We open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. We continue uh, looking to the words of Jesus recorded, uh, his first main teaching, main sermon that we have entitled the Sermon on the Mount. You've been with us week after week as we're navigating through verse by verse. First of all, I hope it's been a blessing. Uh, It has been to me, even preaching through it afresh and anew, uh, just how powerful the words of Christ are to convict us, uh, convict me even, of things that are not right in my life and things that I need to do better in. Now, having said that, I hope and pray you remember something I've said I think week after week after week, repetition is the key to memorization, so I'm going to say it one more time as we're looking now again to the Sermon on the Mount. Do not look to these teachings as a road map to the kingdom of heaven. Don't think that Jesus is setting forth a pathway here by doing these things and being these things, that that if we just do these things and try to be these things the best that we can, then someday we're going to justify ourselves before God. Too many people look to the teachings of Jesus and even the Word of God as a whole, and that's how they misread it. They think, goodness, I need to do these things and I'm going to be okay in the eyes of God. That is not at all what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount really sets forth a standard that if we understand it rightly, we realize none of us measure up to. Uh, Jesus is describing what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like, what his followers will be like, what they will do and what they won't do. So you're right in understanding it as that, but you're wrong in thinking that you can actually be that. The whole point of Jesus speaking as he does here is ultimately to lead all who are hearing to realize We are not citizens of the kingdom. We are not what we ought to be. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it first leads us to a convictional awareness of our sinfulness. And then that ought to lead us to understand where Jesus is going to Calvary. That's where Matthew is going to get to is the cross. That Jesus died for our sins upon that cross. That that the Sermon on the Mount isn't the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to come to Christ first, and He forgives, and He redeems, and not only that, but He, he gives you a new heart. He gives you His Holy Spirit, and then in, in Christ, and only then, can you and I be what He commands of us. The God of His grace, it's so mysterious and magnificent that He not only commands of us what we ought to be, of His grace He gives to us, the ability to be what He commands for us to be. It's only by His grace. It's only by first coming to receive His grace that then you can even ever attempt to be what He commands of you. And so this Sermon on the Mount first should lead you to Christ, to repentance and belief upon Him, and then, as a believer, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, by the grace of God, you look to this and you say, God, make of me what you command of me. God, would you work these characteristics in my life? Would you help me as I even go about in obedience the things that you command of me to truly, to truly obey, to truly follow? Only of grace, only of His mercy. Jesus has taken the Old Testament law and the verses we look to at the end of chapter 5, and He has shown how the Pharisees were taking Old Testament laws and were only viewing them externally only viewing them on the external action. And 
even the worst of the external action that they could apply to. And Jesus took those commands and he showed how the law convicts us not only by our actions, but even inwardly in our heart. If I were to write a, a, a title application over the Sermon on the Mount, it would be that God sees the heart. God sees beyond the external superficial appearances that we can trick everybody else by and the external things we do and don't do. God sees to the very core of who we are inwardly in our innermost being. And the law of God even convicts us there as much as it does an outward action. In chapter 6, what we're going to see is he transitions a little bit from these Old Testament commands and he brings the truth of God to, to shine upon the really three common religious practices of that day and age. Even more so practiced and known in that day and age than they are even in our day and age. And what he's going to do is he's going to show how you can do these things and they can even be right what you're doing, a good thing. But ultimately God sees beyond the action to the very heart. And that it's possible to do even good religious good works, good religious deeds, and have a heart that is far far removed from God. The three religious practices that we'll look at today and in the weeks to come are that of almsgiving, the giving of alms. We don't call it that anymore. We would call it tithes, offerings, and benevolence is really a common day description of that. Giving to the temple, giving to the church, to the the ministry, and giving to the poor. Giving benevolently to those who are in need. Almsgiving. And then that of praying. And then that of fasting. William Barclay notes of those three works, that they were the three great cardinal works of the religious life, the three great pillars upon which the good life was based. That that if you were a devout religious person, in that day and age especially, you would be known by your almsgiving, by your praying, and by your fasting. What Jesus is going to show us is that just as the Pharisees took the Old Testament law and made it merely an issue of appearance before man and never let it speak to their heart, they also took these practices and made it nothing but an appearance before man sort of thing. And meanwhile, all the while, God actually looks to the heart. And just as they did so, we also are tempted to put on a show, to put on a facade that looks right, and deep down inside our hearts might be far, far from the Lord. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. We'll go to verse 4 this morning. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, if you or do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. I want to give you three truths about kingdom giving. Three truths that Jesus speaks to us, teaches to us here. Notice notice first, you are expected to give generously. You as a believer, speaking to Christians in the room, are expected by Jesus 
to be a person who has a generous heart. You, you are to be about the order of giving, about the service even of, of giving, of benevolence, and of giving even of tithes and of offerings. And you, you read the passage again and you say, wait a second, Jesus doesn't command me to be a, a generous giving person here. And I would say, you're right. He doesn't command it. You know what he does? He simply infers that you and your common sense understanding of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, you understand that that to be a follower of Jesus means you'll be that way. He, He assumes it. He assumes an understanding that my followers will do charitable deeds. They will be generous in their offering and in their benevolence. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. He just infers that you know that. If you need it written as a command, go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42, Jesus says it pretty clearly. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The kingdom citizens are going to be generous, kind, compassionate, sacrificial sort of people. For the... Jewish context, the, the ones that would have originally heard this, they, they knew that the giving of alms was equated with righteousness. Uh, it was very, very highly looked up to by all who were religious in Jesus' day and age. The, the Jews so highly esteemed almsgiving that they even used the word righteousness in the place of almsgiving. And so verse 1 actually reads more literally, take heed that you do not do your righteousnesses before men. And in the context, what Jesus is talking about is almsgiving. But the, the Jews had so highly looked up to the giving of alms and, and generosity to the poor or to the beggar that they equated that as one and the same with righteousness. If you look to some of their writings of Jesus' day, they, they even developed heresy. Honestly, it's heresy about the giving of alms. One writing says, Lay up alms in thy storehouse, and it shall deliver thee from affliction. And so that if you're you're truly being generous and giving to the poor, they would say it would would prevent affliction. God would prosper you because of it. Alms delivers you from death and will purge away all your sin. I think the Roman Catholics picked up on that. Almsgiving will deliver you from hell and make one perfectly righteous. And another writing says, giving of alms will make restitution to God for sins that the giver has committed. And so the the average person hearing this teaching of Jesus, they had that sort of background of knowledge about almsgiving, even a wrong view of almsgiving to the extent that through being generous to the poor, you could actually pay your salvation. You could atone for your sin. You could bring about the blessing and prosperity of God. Jesus says here, and thinking of the Pharisees in particular, I would imagine, of the way that they would do their almsgiving, you you can only imagine with that sort of background the way that a person might get in their own spiritual arrogance. That that if a a Pharisee were to pass a beggar and and nobody were around to see it, the likelihood is they'd walk right by the beggar. But if there were people around who were watching Quickly, they would get some some amount of money and they'd make sure people were looking and they'd give to be seen of other people. They would give so that their righteousness would be evidenced. They did not have a heart of compassion for the one who was in need. 
They weren't giving out of a heart of love for the person who was suffering. The, the main concern in their giving merely was, are other people looking? Am I going to look good within their sight? Nevertheless, God commands of us, it's inferred here, though we're not to give that way, we'll talk about that in depth in a moment, that we are to be a giving people. We are to have a heart of generosity. This is repeated multiple times in the Word of God, even in the New Testament. John uh, writes in 1 John 3.17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart up against him, how does God's love abide in him? That if you are a person who actually has come to receive the generosity of God, you know His grace that's forgiven you, you know His love poured out for you at Calvary, that He's forgiven you and redeemed you and all the blessings He gives to you of eternal riches and eternal life, if you've come to receive that, John says you can't shut the door to a person in need, especially a brother or sister in Christ. If you can turn a blind eye to that, John's the one saying it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you don't have the love of God in you. The people that have received such generous love from God will be people who extend that generosity and love and kindness to others. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The reality is, if you are not a giving person, you are not a godly person. If you're here and you think I'm a Christian, um, I'm following after God and obedience to all His commands and all His ways, and you don't have a heart that, that is sacrificial in giving to, one, the, the ministry of the gospel, that the gospel can go to the ends of the world, and two, uh, the, to the benevolent needs that are all around you. The reality is the love of God, John says, is likely not in you. Now, I get asked the question a lot about a tithe. There's a Bible command that I ought to tithe. And the answer is a little complicated. I don't think it's as complicated as we like to make it out to be, but nonetheless, in the New Testament, it is true, we do not find the tithe commanded of us. Never is it written in the New Testament, thou shalt give 10%, maybe your first 10% to the Lord. However, it is written in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had it built in where, you know, of their first fruits, they were to give a tithe, a tenth. In the Old Testament, to the Old Testament saint, that was a binding command. I would agree that in Christ, uh, that is not a binding command upon us. The New Testament command is actually a little bit more uh, weighty than that. Not only get a 10, 10%, the New Testament command is you give until it hurts. You give sacrificially. That we are to be sacrificial givers for the kingdom of God and for the well-being of those who are in need all around us. I would say I am thankful that my parents instilled into me tithing, even as a young kid, when I'd get an allowance, when it got to that point that I eventually would get $10, we'll make the math simple, I gave a dollar to the offering plate, and that did teach me the wisdom of Proverbs that we just read, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your bats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. I would say there's great wisdom even in the tithe to say just as a general principle in my in my management stewardship of the finances, I'm going to give a tenth right off the bat, the first fruits of the Lord, because I know He will bless that, and He will make He will make do with more with the ninety percent than I would with the hundred percent. And so, no, it's not a binding command, but I think it is a good principle uh, that you should instill in your life that that ought not to be all that we do. 
We do need to give to the church for the ministry of the gospel, for the ministry of a local church and church planning and missions and all the ministry that we do as Trinity Baptist Church. But your generosity ought to extend to more than that. Especially in mind, in the words of Jesus here, with almsgiving is your generosity to people that are in need. And I know we've got to exercise great wisdom in our day and age. It doesn't help if somebody is strung out on drugs to give them a $20 bill to just further their, their drug addiction. There's, there's more difficult avenues that we have to go down to actually bring assistance and help to people in certain, certain life situations. However, don't let the abuse of your generosity um, make you justify neglecting being generous. <laughs> like, Christians ought to be generous people. How many of you have ever gone to the Christian concert before? And during the intermission, they get up there and they show you all these sad stories of kids that are starving and kids that are you know, orphans in all parts of the world. And they got those little packets. Any of you ever gone home with three or four of those things before? <laughs> Anybody got kids that are going up? And, hey, you've got, to, you've got to do, that's a good thing. It shouldn't be all that you do. You do need to support the gospel ministry, but it's not a bad thing to support at thirty or forty dollars a month, or take two or three if you're financially able, and support support kids that are going to be able to get food and actually survive in life because of your generosity, your kindness, your compassion. Christians, out of all people, ought to be the ones doing such things. Christians, out of all people, ought to be the ones who are donating to the food bank, even Lake Area Ministries and Keystone and the other benevolent ministries that we have. Historically, they've, they've, they've come out of, of Christian movements, Christian churches, Christian denominations. Why? Because the people who have experienced the generous love of God ought to be the people who have a generosity and love to extend to others. That is not merely commanded here. It is inferred and implied as a no-brainer nonsensical sort of if you think otherwise. Take heed that you do your charitable deeds not before men. He says you're going to be doing them. Moving on. Second, what we find is that Jesus is not only concerned about the gift given, but Jesus is actually even more concerned about the heart of the giver. Notice, secondly, you are never to give selfishly. Never to give selfishly. But it's possible to give. It's possible to give even a great sum, a great amount, a great sacrificial offering or benevolent gift. And you do so in a way that is self-motivated. You do so in a way that is self-glorifying. What is of utmost importance to God, as revealed here, is actually the heart posture of the one giving the gift. And to put it in my own words, what I think Jesus is doing here in verses 1 through 4, He is definitely making a contrast between two different types of giving, two different types of giver. And, and if I were to put a title over it, I'd call it the look-at-me giver versus the look-at-God giver. The look-at-me giver, look-at-me, 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 versus the look-at-God. All attention is upon Him. No attention upon that person. You ever met that look-at-me sort of person? And no matter what they're doing, it's really being done. You see it, you know it, they're really doing it to draw attention to their self. Doesn't matter if it's a guy at work who's working hard at work. Doesn't matter if it's a person at church who's given the offering. It doesn't matter if it's the, the preacher who's preaching from the pulpit every Sunday morning within a church somewhere. You, you see that what they're doing and their main motivation for why they're doing it is not that God would be exalted, but that they might make a name for themselves. 
that they might reveal to everybody who's watching, to everybody who sees, just how righteous, just how good that they are. You, you can imagine, again, going back to the Pharisees, the, the way in which they were giving to the poor. They were passing by the beggar when nobody was watching. But if people were watching, they'd pull it out, pull out a lot of cash to help the beggar only because they knew this was how they would look righteous before other people. Jesus says, Take heed that you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have your reward from your or you, you don't have a reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. You could imagine if I got Brad Collette who played the trumpet this morning to, to come in if we were collecting an offering and you imagine you come up if we had the offering place up here and you were setting your offerings in and going to your seat but, but Brad all of a sudden popped in the door and he goes and then lo and behold Billy Weber comes marching in with his treasure chest and he, he marches in all attentions on him and, and he's got a great offering he's bringing and he put it all in coins because he loves the sound of it pouring into the offering plate. Ching, 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 ching. And he goes and he sits on the front row for all attention, for all eyes to be upon him. Now, there's no historical writing that, that even evidences that the Pharisees actually did it that way. Now, Jesus is likely just making a hyperbole, an exaggeration here, drawing attention to the fact that they did do things in a way, even though they literally didn't have a trumpet. When they would do things like this, they were doing it to be seen by other people. I don't think any of us are so bold or ignorant that we would have a trumpet sound before us as we come in to show off just how good we are. But truth be told, if we examine our heart, we know this temptation to do what we know we ought to do, not because we're, we're in humble obedience following the Lord, but to do it just because we know other people are watching. And to do it because we know other people will think more highly of us for seeing us do it. Seeking to do our good works, our good deeds, our charitable deeds before men and not simply before God. What does God say of that? He says the person that does such, they have their reward. You're getting what you're seeking. You've got the attention of man, and that is your reward. God says, I'm not going to reward that. That, that does not glorify me. That has no eternal merit. God says, I see the heart. I look beyond the external action that can fool everybody and anybody else, and I see to the very motivation of your heart when you do even good things, what you're supposed to be doing. The trickiness and the sinfulness of our heart and our pride is we can do even good things in a sinful way. You know, you get that? You understand that? You can come to church in a sinful way. You can be here this morning simply because mama and daddy wanted you to be here. You can be here this morning just because you know the neighbor across the street is seeing you and you're trying to impress that person or this person or whoever, or it's going to help you in a job, or it's going to... There's all sorts of reasons that people can do good deeds and good works. It's simply self-glorifying self-exalting, self-benefiting. God sees the heart. He says of such people, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You've got an external appearance of righteousness, but deep down inside, you're far from God. You're not glorifying God. I can remember hearing the story a couple of times throughout my life of the uh, ship, the 
the Queen Mary. It was a ship built in 1936. It was used in World War II, a passenger vessel, and later just turned into a passenger vessel after World War II, used all the way up until the 1960s, where I think they took it and they docked it in California somewhere as a tourist-type boat to get on. 1960s, they go as they're converting the boat to be used there just as a tourist, uh, tourist boat and decided to refurb the boat. They realized that the, the smokestacks, there's, if you picture a ship and you picture the three smokestacks coming up, those smokestacks over its lifespan had been painted over 30 times. 30 layers of paint were on that thing. And they decided, let's go ahead and strip all the paint off. Let's redo the ship, repaint it. And as they began stripping the paint off of those smokestacks, what they found is what looked like strong, you know, nicely, freshly painted smokestacks. All, all the steel in it that was one-inch thick steel originally had so decayed and deteriorated from rust that all that was holding that thing together was the 30 layers of paint. And as they stripped the paint, the whole smokestack would just disintegrate. And you, you look at that picture, and I hope that image sticks in your mind. That's what hypocrisy is. It's 30 layers of paint that we've built up around our lives that everybody looks at and thinks all shiny and good and structurally well and sound, when the reality is on the inside, it's rusty, it's decaying, it's whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would speak, even of the Pharisees. On the outside, they looked all nice and pretty, but on the inside, there was dead bones, decaying flesh. We can do good works and look so good on the outside. But God sees beyond the superficial, beyond the external to the very heart. And God's concern is not merely with the external action, but He wants the heart. He wants the heart of the worshiper, the heart of the giver, to not be motivated by selfish ambition in what he or she is giving, he or she is doing. So many applications for this. It applies to giving, absolutely, but it applies, as I mentioned, even to going to church, to praying at mil- meals. You know, how many times can a person be out in public and the only reason they're praying is simply because they know others are watching and they have to let everybody else know they're a Christian? Um, you can be wrongly motivated in that. I hope when you pray, you're genuinely giving thanks to God for what He's provided and truly praying to Him and not praying before people that are hearing. Witnessing, believe it or not. I've, I've met a person a time or two that, not being judgmental, just discerning, but, but people that I think even witnessed. And it's really not God-glorifying because they're way more concerned about themselves than they are about the person they're witnessing to. It's really about them and them letting everybody else know that they're not afraid to tell people about Jesus. You can even witness and share the gospel in a way that ultimately isn't glorifying to God. Can you believe that? That's how tricky and sinful our hearts are. I can preach a sermon, and it may externally have an impact even, and God of His grace use it and look all nice and good, and deep down inside, if my heart's not right with the Lord, I've got my reward. If I'm seeking you, your approval and your praise, God says, hey, you've got your reward. There's no eternal value, no eternal merit in it. To really examine our lives, not only in our giving, but in all that we do, and say, God, am I selfishly motivated? Am I seeking my own ambition in this Or am I truly desiring your glory? A great statement from John Blanken. Convicting statement. What you are in public will never blind God to what you are in private. What you are in public will never blind God to what you are in public. You 
You can put on the church clothes and come in here Sunday morning and sing the song at the top of your lungs and even have a voice that is in the right key. Hallelujah, praise God. And it looks great. And it sounds great. And to all who are watching, it appears like you are drawn near to God and close to Him. All the while, your heart can be so far away. God sees beyond the public presentation that we can so easily fool everybody with. And He sees to the very heart. And He desires the heart. What you are in public will never blind God to what you are in private. Notice thirdly, thirdly Jesus teaches the opposite side of that worded positively. You are always to give secretly. You're never to give selfishly. You're always to give in secret. You read verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. Now, what does it mean to do a deed in secret, to do a, a, a charitable deed, a, an act of giving, even generosity in secret? Does that mean that I cannot let anybody whatsoever ever find out about it? Not necessarily. It's not speaking even to the act itself as much as it is the heart behind the act, the heart behind the giving, behind the gift. I think worded simply, it just means that you're not seeking to, not seeking to make a spectacle of your giving. You're not seeking to be known or let others know about it in a way that would exalt you, but you're simply giving for the sake of the gift, for the sake of the, the glory of God. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's another exaggeration here. How can the left hand and right hand are both connected to the same brain? How can one not know what the other is doing? It's another exaggeration to say, you ought to not even tell yourself what you're doing. You realize that you can be motivated selfishly without even having anybody else around to see that I, I, I could, or someone might say, of their own giving even, goodness, you know, I, I give a lot to Trinity Baptist Church, don't I? They could say, you know what, I give a lot to those orphans in need. I, I am just a really good person. And yourself, you, you're, you're feeding yourself ultimately lies that build up your ambition, that build up your, your self-exaltation, your self-glory. God, God says, no, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even tell yourself about the gifts you're giving. You just give them, and you entrust it to the Lord, and you, you give it as a sacrificial offering to the Lord, and let, let God be the one who exalts in His timing, in His way. And He says He will. He says what's done in secret, God sees it, and God will reward it openly. Now, when I was back in high school, the... I think it was Athletes in Action that first came out with it, and then the FCA caught on to it, and it became very prevalent with a lot of organizations. But that, the, the slogan, the phrase, audience of one. How many of you have heard that before? Is that still a thing like an FCA in sports? Not really, not much. It ought to be. Audience of one. You would see athletes even that would have AO1 on their shoes or on their jersey, probably before they would get kicked off the team for such things. But um, dating myself maybe a little bit here. Audience of one. It simply was a slogan that spoke to playing in sports before God and God alone, not seeking self-glory, self-ambition, self-exaltation, but really seeking even in, your, even in your, your athletics to glorify God, that God's glory would be seen through you. Audience of one, um, Big Daddy Weave, a contemporary Christian artist, wrote a whole song on it. I encourage you to listen to it, a great song, except he applied it outside of the sports realm just to life in general. It's a great slogan audience of one, that I'm going to live my life 
doing whatever God has called me to do, whatever good God puts before me to do, with really an audience of God and God alone. I'm going to do it before Him in humble obedience before Him and sacrificial worship before Him, not seeking the glory of man, not to do it before other people that they could think more highly of me, but, but simply so that Christ may be exalted, that Christ may be glorified. I remember a long while back, I don't remember when, it was either a sermon in chapel or, or maybe Bible college, that, that some preacher along the way said, you know, just looking out to a bunch of kids wanting to go into the ministry and be preachers or be missionaries, he just said, hey, build up a habit of just do, doing good and not telling anyone. Do good and don't tell a soul. And that stuck with me all these years later. Just do good and don't, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't brag about it to the whole world. Don't, don't exalt yourself and, and toot your own horn, blow the trumpet that all can be drawn to the, the goodness of who you are. Just, just do good and don't tell anybody. Let God receive the glory. Let God give exaltation in due time. It's a great thing to remember. It's a great thing to obey in light of the words of Jesus here. Do good and tell no one. I want to close by simply reading the story of Jesus recorded in the end of Luke 20, beginning of Luke chapter 21, where Jesus is watching and he sees some Pharisees and what they're doing. And he sees the offerings that the rich are giving. And he looks out and he sees a widow as well and the offering that she's bringing. And I pray even as you leave this morning and you won't remember the three points of my sermon, I know you'll remember the widow. And I pray even the lesson God reveals to us through her would shape your heart and even your life in the days that are ahead. Then in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do pray and ask that you of your grace would give to us this heart of this widow lady. Lord, a heart of sacrificial giving heart that isn't seeking to look good in front of others, look good in front of other people in order that we may exalt ourselves before them, but a heart that just simply is just broken in submission before you in worship, doing all that we do, every good and righteous gift you give and that, that is done through us. Lord, we, I pray you'd never let us rob you of the glory that you deserve in it. So, Lord, this morning, if there's any that need to repent, I pray you bring conviction upon their hearts. I pray every loving kindness you lead them to Christ. Lord, if there be any in here who've never come to Christ, not saved, not one of your children, 
Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. May they repent and believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, take your word, I pray. Mold us and shape us by it, we ask in Jesus' precious name.